So hello and welcome back to the pod. Yes, it's been a while, big time. It's probably been about three, maybe four months, possibly. It's been um, way too long. Far too long. We may as well call this season two now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In our sixth episode, it's already season two. Eh, some TV shows are even shorter. <laughs> Very true. I've been watching uh, Endeavor on ITV, and those seasons are now three episodes long. Whoa. That's Barely basically a just a short movie at that point. <laughs> yeah, the episodes are like 90 minutes, so they are basically mini ah, movies. Well, there you go, then. Yes. But anyway, today's episode is on Citizen Kane and Mank, with recommendations from last season, I guess now, of Arrival <laughs> and Her. <laughs> we're really desperate and we're going to do it but we'll do a Bond special considering we've both seen the new Bond film but we had to be honourable and honour what we said in, what did we do last week? Shutter Island? I think it must have been yeah. Yeah, it was Silence of the Lambs and Shutter Island and we said we did Sit and Kane and Mank and, and then we, we went are. on the hiatus for a little while We went on summer break, that's what <laughs> Yeah, let's go with that, yeah Can I come out of retirement like Bond does in the new film or in the last Three films, I'd say. Yeah, he's come out of retirement how many times now? <laughs> At least three. Hopefully that's not us, but uh, <laughs> oh well. It's our first. Okay, so let's go to Citizen Kane. It's a 1941 film directed by Orson Welles, the screenplay by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. And it won the Oscar in 1942 for Best Writing Original Screenplay. It's rated on IMDb 8.3 out of 10. It's a nice golden old classic that we uh, get to explore in the movie Mank as well. So that should be good fun. Its premise is a group of reporters explore the lavish life of eccentric millionaire Charles Foster Kane, played by Orson Welles himself, to try to understand his final words, well, word, Rosebud. So, it's another character study type movie, so hopefully you're into those types of movies, because we've covered a lot of them. You sure have. I still think Phantom Thread as a character study is possibly my favourite. It's definitely my favourite. Oh, yeah. I recently went to see that in the cinema for the first time, and no matter how many times I see it, I just love that it has such little plot, and we just get to spend time with... An outrageous Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, I could talk for that for ages, but we've already spoken about that, so... Oh, yeah. Not dwell on it. So, Citizen Kane, did you like it? That's the first question. Um, yes. One thing I am picking up as a trend between all these character study type movies that I'm kind of understanding now is that none of them are really likeable main characters. Because Citizen Kane himself is pretty controlling in how he wants his life to be run. Yeah, I, and I guess it yeah. probably wouldn't be that interesting if they were just the perfect person the whole time. So they kind of have to be flawed and a bit unlikable. Yeah, I think that happens more for character studies where the characters are fictional. Whereas yes. if you're going for character studies in terms of a biopic, and they tend to pick people... They don't always pick likable characters, but they tend to. Most of the time they do, yeah. Yeah, that people know, recognise, and can get on board with, because yeah. they know what they've done in the past. It's um, like, um, was it Churchill with Gary Oldman at the helm? Oh, Darkest Hour. Yeah. That's the one, Darkest Hour, about Winston Churchill. 
people can get on board with that kind of thing. Or yeah, um, even like the Steve Jobs, Michael Fassbender biopic. Obviously, it showed a lot of flaws in that of him, but because of how contemporary it is, um, kind of works. To be honest, I didn't particularly like that movie. I find it interesting, but the I mean, character studies, there's not a whole lot of plot. We just spend time with the character and try and get to know them, I guess. Yeah. And it's partly, I think, biopics focus on such little parts of people's lives. They tend to pick a period rather than an entire person's life. Yeah, I mean, even for Mank, which we'll get to later, that was, what, 10 years of his life? 1930 to 1940, yeah. So they focus on specific parts of their life, yeah, that are relevant. Got to pick the right part, though. (laughs) Yeah. You can't have a whole... Actually, didn't Manx say a line like that? You can't depict an entire person's life in two hours. Yes, he did. So we'll get to that later, but it does really fit for all character study type movies. But back to Citizen Kane. His, um... His lavish life really like brought back to mind. Do you remember Brewster's Millions? Yes, one of my favorites. Recommended me to watch ages ago. One of my favorites. It kind of reminded me of that because he kind of threw money at everything, didn't he? Yes. Um, I guess in a different way because he's having to spend his money there to then get more money in the end. Um, it was like what? Spend thirty million to earn three hundred million. Yes, within thirty days. Yeah, that is just um, a genius premise that hopefully we'll get to one day. So wonderful. We could definitely do it. They're actually doing a Richard Pryor season at the BFI at the moment, and they've been showing Brewster's Millions as well as um, a few of his other films and a lot of his stand-up. So we should we definitely Ooh. do that at some point. Definitely. It's him and John Candy. Oh, oh legend John Candy. Oh, we love John Candy. <laughs> we should really get back on topic. <laughs> we really should. Um, uh, yeah. I guess Citizen Kane for me, I do really like it, and I think it works so well because as a character study and there's such little plot, we're just spending time with Charles Foster Kane, and they're just kind of individual scenes that are cut together. It just somehow works. We're just seeing events of this man's life because the newspaper are trying to work out what Rosebud means. Hmm. So you're just getting very small stories that get sewn together into one bigger story. Yeah, it's like mini stories. Each probably don't last more than 10 minutes each. And it just works because each story feels very self-contained as it works its way through and as it plays out. And obviously at the end, we're the only people that actually get to know what Rosebud does mean. So in that way, as a viewer... Throughout, we're pretty much in the eyes of newspaper people, the journalists, on their discovery. But at the end of the day, we know more than them because the camera does all the work. Oh, yeah. The camera does do a lot of work in Citizen Kane as well. Definitely. It's very um, visual storytelling at some points. 100%. Um, in terms of, I wouldn't say it's like world building on the scale of <laughs> Blade Runner or anything. Oh, but God, yeah. Sort of work the camera does in showing how wealthy he became, especially when it's panning outside Xanadu and also inside with all his possessions towards the end. Nothing has to be said. We can just see how wealthy he's become. 
after he passes away as well. I think that's a and wonderful all of that thing from to being do. adopted by the Thatcher family. Yeah, absolutely. Which, um, arguably, is a, would be a brilliant life. Adopted <laughs> by a rich family, but it has its own flaws. I want to bring up one big thing, which, I mean, it's been talked about loads in the past, and is probably or arguably the greatest plot hole of all time, but also nobody cares about it. You know what it is? I'm assuming it's what I've heard of where who's around to hear him say Rosebud? Yeah, that's the thing. Nobody hears him say it when he just before he dies. I guess Or did they? Because his butler was they? present when he died. Well, did the butler not walk in slightly afterwards? Or was he kind of standing away from? I'm pretty sure he was Bad. in the room at the time, because I do remember before I'd even seen this movie, I knew about the plot hole of who heard the word Rosebud. Mm. And then there was a different YouTube video I watched a while after that said, actually, the butler was there the whole time. He just heard it. He was just off screen. Okay. There's nothing to say that the butler told anybody. No. So, so it, I guess. it is Does a bit part... unconfirmed, but sort of you can justify it. it. There's also that bit towards the end when he is looking old and he's walking through Xanadu and there are lots of people present and he has the snow globe and he kind of mutters it quietly. That's right before the end. But particularly when the journalists are focusing on his last word, they didn't hear it, barely anybody heard it, and not told that the butler did tell anybody if he heard it at all. So I don't think he said it that loudly either. Yeah, it was kind, it was of, kind of a like whisper. whisper. Like a rosebud. Whisper. <laughs> rosebud. No. Mm, exactly. Yeah. That's the first. But at the same time, nobody cares. It yeah, could be cause... the greatest plot hole of all time, but nobody cares about it. Because, I mean, it drives the entire movie, but we hear it, so we just kind of assume... We accept it, yeah. ...that other someone else must have heard it. Definitely. Another big thing that I wanted to raise is, I guess you don't need one, but there's no real central villain. You have, I guess you could argue, Mary Kane as a villain. Uh, and she has been argued as the villain. I mean, movies don't really need an antagonist. Yeah. Um, Especially I mean, character study type movies. Like, the only antagonist you can really have in a character study type movie is the person's arch nemesis, and how many people actually have an arch nemesis? I guess very few. I would just think in this sort of movie where he's trying to become this huge magnate that he would have more people in his way to get him to that level. So it's been argued that Mary is an antagonist in sorts because it defines his early life. And I think it gets argued that Gettys um, is also an antagonist in a way because of what he does in publishing their story in the newspaper to try and bring him down. Um, but after that happens and it's published, you don't really hear anything more from Gettys. Don't see him again, certainly. Mm. I can understand why people are arguing that way, but I personally just don't agree with it. It, it, it doesn't need an antagonist, so there's no point trying to find one in my mind. So you can justify it that there is one, but I don't see the need it's to. Definitely, yeah, kind of there in the background, but at the same time it's about him trying to become this biggest 
border force in the publishing industry as possible. Yes. And you having bring up, brought up two major points, sort of, I'm going to bring up a very, very small one. Because I feel that would be funny. There's a Phineas and Ferb episode where they go to an equivalent of Loch Ness called Lake Nose. And the, um, <laughs> really? Yeah, and the lifeguard, or like head lifeguard or something, gets knocked out at some point, and as he's on the ground, he just goes, Nose, bud, because that's the name of the <laughs> ship. And it's like, well, that's obviously a reference to Citizen Kane. Fantastic. It was kind of funny. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Family Guy cutaway of it? Uh, not you know, yet, there's two. Actually. There's the Family Guy cutaway, and there's also the Simpsons Mr. Burns thing. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I think I've seen the Mr. Burns one, but I didn't link it to Citizen Kane at the time because I didn't really know what it was. So I vaguely have a recollection of Mr. Burns doing a dramatic style, that sort of style thing where it's just dramatic death, saying a word. Yeah, and he... he uh kind of like almost collapses in his bed and Smithers is there like huddled over him and he drops the snow globe that smashes yeah at the side of the bed there's a box of snow globes and it's like never break snow globes (laughs) yeah (laughs) it smashes so there's that and I really like that because of what Mr. Burns as a character is and how powerful he is fairly Um, similar to Kane himself absolutely um then you also have the Family Guy cutaway, uh, where I think it's playing on the TV, so it looks like it's on black and white, and there's Peter, who's meant to be working in the video store at that time, and it cuts away because Brian says something in court along the lines of, that's like when Peter got fired from the video store for taping over their movies, and like uh-huh. Citizen Kane starts, and <laughs> Kane says Rosebud, and he drops the snow globe, and then it just cuts to Peter saying it's his sled. It's his sled. Oh, yes, actually, I <laughs> do that? vaguely have a recollection of that clip. Then he says something he like, spoils the movie. Yeah, and he says something like, sat through two boobless hours, it's his sled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Typical family guy humour, that. I think is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, all in all, a good movie. Can't think of much to talk about because it is just exploring his life throughout the years. There's one other thing that I wanted to bring up. Oh, go ahead. What was it? You're going to have to edit this bit because I'm trying to think what it was. <laughs> Understand. I've written it down. Um, this is why I make notes. Yeah. Points to it talk came about. came to me as you. What was your point then? It was... Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> oh, it's come to me now. Thank you. You've reminded me. Um... <laughs> I might actually <laughs> just leave this all... bit in because it'll be funny. It's all linked to Rosebud Nosebud. What did you think of the meaning of Rosebud? What does that mean to you when you see it written on the sled? Absolutely nothing. Do so you think it's pointless? I think it's it's him remembering back to his childhood i i guess but other than that there's not much to it in my mind okay it's just oh this is this was the name of the toy i used to love <laughs> Woohoo. i think it's obviously him harking back to his childhood i also think that was 
the point in his life where he was at his happiest. Oh, that is a good shout. That's why before he does get sent away and gets abandoned by his mother, I think he's remembering that time when he was out playing in the snow. I think that scene at the start is quite extensive and it shows him having fun in the snow and playing whatever. Um, so I think when he sees that snow globe and he thinks of the snow and he says it, that was the point of his life. Where is it his happiest? Yeah. Because as soon as he gets sent away, happiness drops and then he's trying to build himself back up. He does become this massive magnate and obviously marries, but then the stuff comes out about the affair. So I think at that point his love life is in tatters as he gets exposed through the papers by Getty. And then he lives this quite solitary life after that in Xanadu. And at that point, I don't think he sees that money can buy him happiness, which is why it's an inflection in a way as he dies. He looks back to his childhood when he's at his most happy. That actually puts a very new light on the on the end of the movie for me now. I, I, there must be loads of things. What does it? And there will be people that said it means nothing, and it's a big sort of. Uh, what was the point of the film? I bet people argue that like it has no meaning and it doesn't need a meaning. But we've spent Isn't time that with this sort character. of what the journalists come to the conclusion of at the end. It was kind of just not worth a story or am yes. I misremembering because I'm pretty sure at the end they were just like there's not really much point to it now because no one can tell us what it means so it can't have been that important or something like that try and find the screenplay so Thompson the journalist he gets asked don't you think that the word explains anything and then Thompson says that Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or lost. No, I don't think it explains anything. I don't think any word explains a man's life. I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle, a missing piece. There you go. They sort of accept that they'll never find out, and obviously with the good camera work we do. Do you have a... Actually, this is a good point. Did you have a theory as it went on what it could be? I was assuming it was going to be a woman. Okay. Like maybe he had a childhood friend or he encountered someone throughout his life called Rose and then they had some nickname that ended up being Rosebud or had some adventure that they ended up nicknaming the Rosebud. If it wasn't just a ship like um, in Phineas and Ferb. So I was thinking, oh, maybe Rosebud is the name of a dinghy or a, an entire ship that he bought possibly named after a woman called Rose or something, and then it just ends up being a sled. I always had, when I first watched it, I had two guesses. I thought, one, it could be a book that he'd read at some point in his life, maybe his favourite book, but at the same time, I've never known a book called Rosebud. Um, but I think I thought more so that it was a place that he had some sort of fondness for. A place um, named Rosebud? Like Xanadu, but Rosebud, I was thinking along that sort of lines. Um, so when I did see it at the end and it gets put into the fire, it did surprise me. And I was glad that, one, it somehow hadn't been ruined for me throughout all these years, because I only watched it about a year or two years ago, first time. Um, and two, what I've thought about it and how 
everybody that watches it can have their own opinion on what it means to them, if it means anything at all. Yeah, because, I mean, throughout the movie, it kind of just has a multitude of things it could be. Like, you can form any sort of thing, and it can be somewhat justified based on the character you're watching. Definitely. I, I, I thought at one point when I first watched it that we'd never find out. I'm pretty sure that also crossed my mind as well, yeah. We'd just end up like the journalists and... Yeah, imagine if we didn't. I don't know if that would be more satisfying or not. But we never found out. In terms of does it add much? No. I don't think it does add much. It has the potential to if you see it as him looking back to the happiest moment of his life, though. It has the potential to, but I don't think it's massive plot-wise. Because at the end of the day, he does just pass away as he says it. Mm. If we didn't find out, everybody would be disappointed, but it would remain a mystery, I guess. I'd say the only ending that would have been disappointing to me is if everyone found out, including the journalists. Okay, you quite like it that you found out and nobody else did. I quite like that. Or if they made it so that no one found out and it was just left up to your imagination, I would have quite liked that as well, I feel. Yeah, that could work. That's, that's interesting. I always like to ask people, because I don't think many people our age have actually seen it. I mean, um, with it being, what, 80 years old now? It's now 80 years old, yeah. But even so, when it's quoted as the greatest film of all time... Um, you can very much see why. You can see why people should have seen it. Um, obviously, they just haven't. Mm. I mean, my opinion on them... Um old movies is that generally I just don't particularly like the old style because it's just the audio quality, everything being black and white, I was never really much of a fan of but then you get a movie like Mank where they do it on purpose and it works really well it's, I'm, st I'm starting to appreciate older movies more though to get you into them more and more <laughs> oh, I do yeah. love them oh, I, love... I want to go in terms of like the way it's ranked and how it's seen. So um, the big one in terms of ranking, apart from user reviews on IMDb or whatever, is the sight and sound polls that they do. They do these like every 10 years and people that are um, critics get to vote. So in, it's every 10 years is a big thing. Oh, Does polls is in P-O-L-L. Yes, not like North South Pole. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to think, like, Sorry. did they just have, like, sound <laughs> and... sound and lighting equipment coming into the movie at some point? <laughs> with just, what are they called? Like, boom mics, where they're on a giant pole? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I was like, um, I just but no, sight and sound is, like, a thing that do these polls movies. So, last time it was done is was 2012. Um, and it was big because it was the first time... 50 years that Citizen Kane got displaced from number one by Vertigo. Ooh. I love Vertigo and it is in my top four films. That'll have to be so... another one to be recommended someday then. Oh, we can do a whole special on Vertigo instead of just a recommendation. I, to see it. I love that film so, so much. Um, but obviously, it getting displaced from the top was a big moment. I think Vertigo got 191 out of 700, no, 846 votes and Citizen Kane got 157. Oh, so um, a sizable margin between them. 40 odd votes. Sizable enough swing, yeah. Mm. So the best part of uh, 
16, 17 vote swing between them. Um, but that was a big moment. But the funnier thing was, do you remember early this year when um, Corn to Rotten Tomatoes, Citizen Kane got thrown by Paddington 2 as the best film of all time? Do you remember that? No, and I'd heavily disagree It hit the news as well. Essentially, some review of Citizen Kane by a critic that took place like in 19... It, might, it must have been 1941 or something. It basically took Citizen Kane's percent down by like 1% or something. Paddington 2 had this perfect score. So Paddington 2 briefly became the best film of all time according to Rotten Tomatoes or something saying at 100%. And because of one review from many, many years ago. <laughs> the best part. It was 80 years ago, yeah. Um, but I'm fairly sure Citizen Kane's now back on top or something, because there must have been a new critic review for Paddington 2 that took it down. Let me watch it. I probably won't like it. I don't know anything about Paddington. Oh, Paddington and Paddington 2 are great. It's, they're both worth watching. There was that funny story, and I just thought that was very amusing at the time. And it actually hit the news big time. It's like, it exploded all over Twitter, as you'd expect displacing an 80-year-old film that was held in such high regard and Panton 2 comes along and just knocks it off its podium. It's rare that a sequel does better than the original, so the fact that it was Paddington 2 and not Paddington 1 is just that little yeah. bit better. Paddington 2 is definitely the better of the two so far. I'm very excited for the third. Nah, they rarely <laughs> get two correct, <laughs> let alone three after two's success. I don't know, Born. True. Actually, the middle Born was probably the weakest of the three, even though it's still very good. The, the third was the best. Born. Uh, Supremacy? Question mark? You mean the fourth one with Jeremy Renner? No, not that one. Okay. Ultimatum, the third one. That was the best one. Yes. Supremacy 2, Identity 1. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. I can um, never remember the order it goes in, other than the one with Jeremy Renner was, was the fourth one. <laughs> yeah, the one where they're trying to steal pills from Manila. Yeah. At some point on the other motorbike. Yeah, I remember that. They they tried. I'll give them that. They tried. They did. Can I enjoy it? It was very, very slow, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. And if it was one of those scenarios where I'm like, I don't have anything to watch on TV, what can I watch? Ooh. It's always on. That's it's, there. Legacy is always on. Yep. If it's there, I'll watch it if there's nothing else, but... I'll watch it just to see him put the drone tracking thing in the wolf's mouth. <laughs> yes. It's actually very memorable, even though it's the least liked one. It's very memorable. You say that, I don't remember much about it apart from a boat scene towards the end. Really? Okay. It may not have even been on a boat, it might have just been in a port. Oh. There's lots of stuff. I like, I like all the stuff, the slow stuff towards the start. It's quite rewarding. And he's in the place in the snow. He sees on the bed inscribed that Jason Bourne had been there. Do you remember that bit? And then No, not really. <laughs> then you have all the stuff with the drone trying to come and kill him. And he puts it in the wolf's mouth and it explodes. And then he meets Rachel Vice. And they end up teaming up and they're going to go to Manila. Because he needs his pills. Didn't even remember it was Rachel Vice that was in the movie. Be a revisit necessary. <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, I haven't seen it in. Well, it came out, when like it came out? 2012. Five years by now. I think the fifth Born came out five years ago, which is crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. 
It's not, we should definitely come back to Citizen Kane and rank it all. We should. We've gone on many score. tangents here. <laughs> um, Score-wise, I'd say critical value of 8.5-9. Then entertainment value of 7. I'd say there are certain stories... Stories, it's like the entire film that are stories, but I do enjoy parts of them. Um, particularly the one with Gettys, that whole scene where they're arguing at the top of the stairs, um, how he's shouting at him basically just shouts his name at Gettys I'm Charles Foster Kane, and Gettys just walks out knowing he's going to publish it anyway. That's really exciting to watch. Um, overall, I I do like it. And I think, speaking to those of our age that have seen it and don't like it as much, probably like it a lot more than people our age do. I can see why people don't get on board with it, because it's essentially a collection of stories to learn about this man's life. Yeah, just little hodgepodges thrown together. For me, personally, I'd give it critical eight or eight and a half, maybe but probably verging towards eight myself. Yep. And then entertainment, six odd. Again, okay. for me, entertaining movies are like action or sci-fi type things, and character studies just don't have enough of it, which is because they're character study movies. They're not trying to entertain. It's true. There's not much plot in there at all. Yeah. Let's move on to traditional and now... Probably the section that people actually come to listen for instead of the movies, which is, of course, the middle section. So we have been fortunate to have been sent in by Ted, who previously gave us the famous game of Acropolis or not of Acropolis. Went down swimmingly when listeners could not see the pictures at all. <laughs> Still uh, we... a genius idea that makes no sense. <laughs> you need to bring that back. Acropolis 2.0 or not an Acropolis 2.0. <laughs> so he sent in a bunch of jokes he's gathered from five-year-olds at the local school he works at. It's very good. And um, in addition to the jokes, he's added comments about the joke, which are also very good. So I'm going to read both the joke and the comment on his behalf. Uh, so all words are his. I think we have 12 in total, which is... Which is, yeah, a lot. Um, I'll need you to be the participant in the knock-knock jokes, and there's probably two. Oh, yeah. I'll be the recipient of the jokes. Actually, no, there's three knock-knock jokes. You've excelled yourself here, actually. Okay. And you can also, if you'd like to, have a guess at the answers to the other ones, but considering they're five-year-old jokes, you'll likely uh, Yeah, I mean, for a brief look at them, I'm not going to get the punchlines. <laughs> okay. So the first one goes, I did the potato cross the road three times. I don't know. Why did the potato cross the road three times? Because there was no toilet at school. <laughs> Ted comments, interesting opener. I guess we were at school when this joke was told, plus a bit of classic toilet humour. <laughs> so it <laughs> crossed the, the road there, once to go to the toilet, came back to school and then left again. <laughs> to go back to the toilet. The and then never return to school. Lie. Yeah, he's just <laughs> a truant here. That's that's remarkable. <laughs> Why did the dog run away from the person? Because it was playing fetch. 
No, because he was trying to zip his bottom. Ted remarks, what? not sure about... <laughs> no, this is this is good. Ted remarks, not sure about this one. Might have been looking for nip in instead of zip. Who can say? May well have heard someone say nip his bottom recently, but misheard. One thing is for sure, though, I definitely don't want a dog to zip my bottom. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 got a point there. <laughs> it's a fantastic. It was weird, but I'll allow it. <laughs> Why did the crocodile go under the table? To munch on some feet. I mean... Halfway there, I guess, because he was hungry and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> what? <So. laughs> Ted's comments go as follows. A crocodile? Question mark. Under the table? Question mark. Not a clue here. Could the crocodile be looking for food and drink being dropped by the table occupants? I'm not sure I'd sit at a table that had a hunger and thirsty crocodile under it. <laughs> They're trying to treat the crocodile like a dog, like you get in the movies when they just drop the plate down to the dog and the table. <laughs> Expect it to eat up and stop begging for food. Yeah. Here's the first of our knock knock jokes. Here we go. Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Yeah, who's there? <laughs> knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Knock knock. Who's there? Are you tired of saying who's there? Yes. <laughs> That's it. Oh Ted, says, <laughs> Ted says, classic, are you bored of this joke joke? <laughs> Might as well have ended it orange. You're glad I didn't say knock knock again. <laughs> Definitely. Next one is, what did the snowman say to the other snowman? Ice to meet you. I wish he had, because that's good. That's a cracker joke for sure. Apparently, uh, I can smell carrots. Let's <laughs> <laughs> carrots a nose. All right, yep, yeah, okay. Uh, and Ted says that Christmas joke told during the end of June. What more needs to be said? <laughs> Christmas joke in June. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, what did the cupcake say to the bottle? Um, no idea. <laughs> Pour some ketchup on me. Because <laughs> <laughs> kids eat ketchup on everything, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I've done it myself once. <laughs> I think I had next... ketchup with a pan of chocolate. Oh, that's interesting. It's really Honestly, interesting. It's bad. Was it warm or cold? The ketchup or the pan of chocolate? Uh, the pan of chocolate. I think it was a warm pan of chocolate. Okay, yeah. I'd probably take the ketchup taste away from it, maybe. I mean, it kind of just, like, ketchup is a bit sweet itself. So they somewhat paired together well, and it was kind of just tasting them individually, and they're both good. So okay. together, it was just the two individually put together. <laughs> That's interesting. Not too bad. <laughs> what this was a number of years ago, by the way. I don't do this <laughs> it anymore. It wasn't the other day. <laughs> it was a lockdown thing. What did, <laughs> what did Father Christmas see on the meadows? Uh, reindeer? <laughs> Almost. I smell reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> and Ted says, must be mixing two classic Christmas jokes here in June again. Although having said that, I don't know what the Christmas joke about the meadows is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That kind of sounds like one of those um, when you combine two phrases and they just don't make sense. Like, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. 
Yeah, that's my famous line I love to use. Yeah. We'll cross that bridge the... when we burn it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the one better. I like using. That's actually better, yeah. That's good. Though at that point, you give your opportunity to cross the bridge, even though it's on fire, whereas mine... <laughs> we're not saying we're crossing it, we're just burning it for no reason. We get to it with the intention of crossing it, and then decided to set it on fire. <laughs> um, what did the plant <laughs> say to the water? Hydrate me. Pretty much. Grow me. Oh. <laughs> well, there you That's go. More, of a, more of a fact. That's a, like yeah. a, a social inflection from the plant. <laughs> <laughs> a social inflection. <laughs> For a five-year-old to think of that, it's fantastic. Okay, knock, yeah. knock. Who's there? Tree. Tree who? Tree who lives in a poo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Ted says, more toilet humour plus a good rhyme thrown in there for good measure. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is, why did the ghost blow his nose? I don't know why did the ghost blow his nose. Because he was full of boogies. Oh my god. god. Ted says, didn't, <laughs> I did what I did as well, didn't really emphasise the boo here, so the joke kind of fell flat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Why is seven afraid of nine? Uh, isn't meant to be seven afraid of eight. No, six <laughs> afraid of seven, isn't it? It is, but this is this is this is novel. This is why is seven afraid of nine? Okay, why is seven afraid of nine? Because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Came in strong. Why is seven afraid of when the confidence was too high? Nine. Palms hit faces across the land at this point because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Just a brutal ending. On the positive <laughs> side, they counted to ten with no issue. Take what no, you no, get he's sometimes. Got a point. <laughs> this is true. And the final one is another knock knock one. Knock knock. Who's there? Justin. Justin who? Just in time for dinner. Hey. <laughs> Classic. Ted says, really strong closer, well delivered, knew where he was coming from and where he was going to, will be a great dad in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, with jokes like those. <laughs> jokes like those. Oh, they are amazing. I love that. <laughs> thank you so much, Ted. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. We move on to your new game following the success of Cheezle Disease and Cheezle Ikea product. We move on to the apparently well-known Cheezle service station to the point <laughs> that there are multiple search results when I googled it. So are these I purely the UK one. service stations? Uh, yes, they are. Well, I, I know one of them, so yes. <laughs> they like Oxford services. <laughs> <laughs> So, shall we get started? Please. Number one. Peas potage, or peas pottage. It's a cheese. It's a service station on the <laughs> M23 near Crawley. And this is oh. the only one I knew because we passed it on the way down to Brighton. And I thought, oh. huh, that's a funny name. Pea potage. You, you saw me down potage. the river by pronouncing it like French. It's because fromage, it's, but it potage. looks like a... I'm pretty sure potage is a French word anyway. It's soup, isn't it? Probably. I believe. So I, I was like, okay, I'm going to peas potage. <laughs> right, number two. 
Duddles well. That's a service station. It's a sheep cheese, actually. What? A sheep cheese? A sheep's cheese called Duddles well. Oh. Number three, Rivington. It's a place. That's a service station, 100%. It is indeed a service station on the yes, M61 near Bolton. <laughs> Sound I knew that. Four, Kidderton Ash. Oh. Kidderton sounds like a place, but then you put ash with it. And considering I had uh, smoked ashwood cheese tonight, I'm going to say that's a cheese. Smoked ash? <laughs> smoked ash wood, is it not? Oh, oh right, ash wood. I was just thinking, like, so you've taken the products of burning stuff, and then you've burnt more stuff underneath it, underneath it to smoke it. What what is that cheese that I had? Uh, if it was just, or... like smoked from ashwood, then yes. But if it's the ashwood itself has been smoked, and then it just is either it... way, it was applewood. My bad, not smoked ash. Ah. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> it was either smoked way. applewood. Kidderton ash is actually a goat's cheese, correct? That's fantastic, and it sort of makes sense because I believe a. Baby goat is called a kid, no? It is, yes. So, Kidderton Ash. Ah, didn't make that connection. I should have done. Number five. Chevington, or Chevington. That's a place, that's a service station. It's a cow's milk cheese, actually. Oh, what am I on at the minute? Two out of five. I have not been keeping track, but I <laughs> believe so. It's not a pass, that's for sure. Number six. Millstone or Millstone. Okay, now he says stun. I'm saying that's a place and it's a service station. It's a hard use milk cheese. <laughs> really been throwing you for a loop hoping, on some of these. I was hoping you said a hard use service station. <laughs> it had a lot of custom. <laughs> ah, yes. A hardly used service station. It like. <laughs> doesn't exist. <laughs> Number seven, Gledrid. It's a place. That's a service station. Correct. It's a small service station on the A5 near Shrewsbury. Come on, three out of seven. Wow. Almost 50%. <laughs> Number eight, Bulldog. Bees. It's a service station on the A1 <laughs> near Stevenage. <laughs> now... On 37.5%, that's not good. What is it you need at uni, like 40%, or is it 42% to pass? I think it's 40. So you need to get, what, one of the next two correct? Yes. Well then, it all comes down to number 9 and 10 then. (laughs) Number 9, Cotherston, or Cotherstone. Service station. It's a cheese from Durham. <laughs> Throwing you on a loop again. Could you keep saying stun? Yeah, it's because I'm reading it myself and be like, how okay. would I pronounce that? And then I look what it is. And three out of nine. Okay, I need Four. this for a third. <laughs> Number ten. Annandale. There's a place in Northern Ireland called Annadale. How do you spell Annandale? A double N A N Dale. Bees. 
and thus you failed this, according to university. The place. Annandale Water is a large service station on the A74 near Carlisle. Oh, that's so far north. Funny fact about Carlisle. Did you know it was in the late 70s, I think, that the UK government owned all the pubs in Carlisle? Really? That's the a, UK that's government owned all the pubs. Fairly sure that's the thing. I wonder why that is. Were they just, was the UK government just entirely drunk then? And thus ends service station or cheese. We need to get another cheese or something because I don't think I'm improving. I think I'm solidly... I don't know, yeah. How far can we take it? (laughs) And as far as you improving, I don't think you can when it comes to random chance. (laughs) I've consistently done badly on a (laughs) 50-50. Got three out of ten on a fifty-fifty game. That's that's not a thing. It's it's possible though. <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's possible to have got worse as well, which is <laughs> somehow evidently we need to uh, brush up on our cheese knowledge by next episode. We really do need to spend some time revising these cheeses. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Should we play one round of the film association game before we get yeah. into Mank? Get a quick round in. I will let you start. Bringing back this repeat game that we'll probably repeat again. <laughs> and I will start with Oscar Isaac. Ooh. June. Jason Momoa. Aquaman. William Defoe. Specifically, William. You've done that to annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Green Goblin. Uh, James Franco. Uh, 127 hours. Oh, I'm trying to think. Killian Murphy from um, Lincoln 28 Days Later, because it's a time passage. In the title. Because it has a number in the title, okay. <laughs> oh, passage of Time, um, specifically. Quiet Place Part 2. Emily Blunt. Uh, oh, I don't want to say Jungle Cruise, because then you'll say The Rock, and I can't afford <laughs> that to happen. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Edge of Tomorrow, brackets, live, die, repeat. Can't wait for the sequel of that. It live, die, repeat, and repeat. Is that what they're calling it? So? I think that's what they're going for, yeah. Excellent. Um, I need to remember an actor's name real quick. Please don't tell me it's Tom Cruise. Cause... No, it's um, the sergeant guy in the first one, which I believe is Bill Paxton. Yes, there you go, Bill Paxton. Um, Apollo 13. He was in that, wasn't he? Uh, I believe so. I, I don't know who's in... I can't name many other films apart from that and maybe Titanic. I want to go Stanley Kubrick here linking Apollo to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, I'll take because Kubrick any space. day. So, Stanley um, Kubrick. Considering there's been a recent 4K restoration and re-release of this, A Clockwork Orange. Ooh. Have you seen it, by the way? No, but I know a fair bit about it. 
And when I say a fair bit about it, I mean actors that are in it. Yes. Uh, it is Malcolm McDowell in it, right? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. I can bring in Caligula. <laughs> oh, God, Caligula. Because <laughs> Malcolm McDowell was in that. Ah. Well, then I'm going to have to uh, go through a different Malcolm McDowell movie because I can't think of him. <laughs> I have no idea what Caligula is. Caligula came out in 1979 and wasn't that well loved. But it's kind of got a bit of a cult following. Um, I know him from Call of Duty, actually. Was he Black Ops 3? Or was he... Which one I was he? believe he was Maxis in... No, he was Dr. Monty, sorry, not Maxis. In Black Ops 3, yeah. Okay. So I'm now going to have to somehow link. link is Call of Duty Black Ops 3. Oh, goodness me. Um, I'm going to go with... Um, gosh, that's not even film related, so I'm going to have to try and pull it back. Yeah, which is why uh, I was hesitant to do it. Let's go with a 0.99mm gun. Oh my good lord. Is it oh, maybe um, the P99 maybe? Or the 0.99? Well, the P99 is a thing I've heard of. How do you spell that? Uh, it's Walter, but with an H in it. It's another gun, is it? <laughs> Walter P99. Ooh, James Bond. Yeah, no, Walter P99 bring... is James Bond's main sidearm, apparently. Yeah, I was trying to bring Bond into it with the P99, so that works perfectly. Because there you then go. I can say, uh, question of sport, aka Quantum of Solace. <laughs> question of sport. <laughs> Oh, we've got to go for Matthew Almerich then. Yes, and then I can bring it to Sound of Metal. Oh, yes. With Riz Ahmed. I put in Nightcrawler. Ooh. You see, I want to link to that movie, but it's also reminding me of X-Men. So I'm going to have to I go with James McAvoy. What's the link, sorry? James McAvoy. How have you got that from Night... Wait, what? Nightcrawler is one of the mutants in X-Men. Oh, of course, yeah. Okay. Uh, Atonement. The purple doo-doo teleports, so I was like, oh, X-Men. Got to go for that. Atonement? Yes. Ooh. I don't know this movie. What? Yeah, I'm looking for an answer that we can end the game on. Well, there we go, then. We can end it on Atonement. I can't end it on Atonement. I'm looking for an answer from Atonement. Ah, all right. Well, we can go to Ikea Nightly. Yes, that's what I wanted. End of game. <laughs> you don't want to go any further than Ikea Nightly? I don't think we should. <laughs> oh, God, we love Mark Motor. We do love the two good doctors. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's move on now to the second part of our special, which is on Mank, which came out late last year in 2020, directed by David Fincher, the wonderful David Fincher, screenwriter written by his late father, Jack Fincher. Oh, I didn't recent... know that. Do you know what? He, he no. actually wrote the screenplay like a bunch of years ago, must be 10 years ago, and Fincher was mm. going to do it after he did the game 
Michael Douglas, but then it never came to yeah. fruition then. So it was nice to do it. Actually, it would have been more than 10 years. It must have been 20 years because the game was 97. So long time coming. There you go, um, yeah. And it won Oscars for Best Production Design. And what we were both fairly surprised on Oscar night because we thought Nomadland might get it because it got the BAFTA Best Cinematography. And on IMDb, yes. it is not as well loved as Citizen Kane. And it is a 6.9 out of 10. Arguably should be higher, but I can somewhat understand why. I can't, it's... but... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, 6.9 is almost 7, so there's, what, one whole rank below, but arguably the best movie of all time. Okay. If I see it like that, it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to shine it in a good light. <laughs> <laughs> and... Premise of Mank is a true story of alcoholic screenwriter Herman Mank Mankiewicz, who, after becoming bedridden, has 60 days to produce a draft script for Orson Welles' movie Citizen Kane. I'm going to ask you the same thing as I asked before. Did you like it? Yes. Even though, I think, what, like an hour before I watched it, I told you I'm not much into character study movies at the moment. And I went into it thinking, oh, it's just going to be exploring the life of Mank himself. But even still, it was strangely compelling. I was invested. I think it's wonderful. It um, definitely helped that um, Charles Dance and Gary Oldman are such good actors to me. Yeah, and these roles for them are just perfect. Oh, they can yeah. really showcase their acting presence. Charles Dance is an absolutely brilliant actor. Every line he delivers has so much purpose, it's great. And authority as well. Yes, he's brilliant at conveying authority like Tywin Lannister. Such a good character. And I think for playing someone like W.R. Hurst, you need somebody of that stature to be that magnet. Definitely. He fits the roles perfectly. And I also love uh, when it comes up at the start with those opening credits, when it comes up and Charles Dance, and you just think, oh... Yes, because... Um, Big letters, yeah. <laughs> on the site I was watching it on, I looked at the act, like the list of actors underneath and only saw Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried that I recognised. And then as soon as the opening credits came up with and Charles Dance at the end, I was like, whoa, this is going to be good. For a treat now, yeah. Um, Speaking of the opening credits, they did a brilliant job of capturing the uh, 1940s style of movie making. With the sort of like um, just black and white, put text on the screen, have it sort of at an angle, and then it just scrolls up. Yeah, and it also plays over something that's happening in the background that's not massively important, but also sets the scene. Yes, like with the a bunch cars of it, arriving at the house. Cars driving up to the house, and it must take like 20, 30 seconds as the cars come towards the camera, things like that. I quite like that because it feels like you're um, watching the movie without actually watching or without actually missing anything important while the credits are going. Definitely. Just helps to set the scene, which is really nice. Yes. And they really continued that 1940s style of movie making because there were multiple times throughout it where you had um, like little black circles appear in the top right. I don't know yes, if you noticed yeah, them, yeah. and I was like, oh, is this actually been filmed on a film reel? Mm. But no, it no, was I just an effect. I noticed that when I watched it last night as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. Actually, I was going to bring this. I'm going to bring Phantom Thread back again, but when I <laughs> when I went to see it in London for the first time in the cinema, it was a seventy millimeter um, cut of it on film. Ooh, and throughout, really you nice. had the blemishes on the film. It looks so good, and the quality of the picture is so sharp. Obviously, you get the little uh, black spots that appear from time to time. Um, yeah, it just looks so authentic and so fantastic. Anyway, enough about Phantom, Phantom Thread again. Um, I was going to make my own tangent here of um, Parasite. You said it has a black and white release, right? It does, and I haven't yet watched it, but I don't I know feel if like we that... should watch that in the black and white mm. version at some point. I have a feeling, though, that... I, d- I don't know if it's meant to be... I think it's as good and the colours being in black and white really stand out. I think that's what Jong Ho said. It is mm. worth watching because blacks are really dark and white colour is really sharp. Um, definitely watch, but I don't know if it will have that same effect where you get the little images on screen or if it was just shot in digital and it's just been turned black and white. I'm not sure. Mm, possibly the latter because I feel like that's the way most black and white movies are done nowadays where they just put a filter over it. Like Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Have you seen Parasite? Oh. Yes, watched it with my parents. You have it? Okay, cool. I really enjoyed it, and then my parents were like, what on earth was that movie? Because it is a bit wacky. But... Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on that, but I just love the way it flips from kind of fun, of even thriller, but then it just flips into horror thriller, and it's just yeah. amazing yeah. through one shot. But it does work when they do just suddenly flip it. Yeah, it works Sounds perfectly fun. and it propels the story along. Um, so yeah. We'll have to check that out, actually. It'd be nice. Um, we could actually do like a whole modern films in black and white thing. That would be quite nice. Yeah. Maybe have a look at... Because I haven't actually seen the Fury Road black and white cut. I haven't actually seen any Mad Max movies. No, I've never seen Fury Road. Tom Hardy. Nope. I think I wow. started watching it at one point and then got distracted with something else okay. and just never go back to it. I'm not a massive fan of it, but I appreciate the way it looks and the way it's made and there's particular scenes like the sandstorm which are just fantastic. Mm. Look at. I feel like um, if I was going to watch it though, I'd have to watch the old ones first. I've only ever seen the original one with Mel Gibson. I've seen the sequels to that. Yes. Uh, I don't think they're necessary to watch though, but you might get enjoyment out of some of them. Possibly. Yeah, that's for another day. Back to Mank. Yes, I actually made notes on this as I watched it, so I made the best part of four pages of notes. Oh my god. Join me on the movie train, on the notes train, and then just... uh... You think it's a lot, but at the same time, the majority of it was me just writing down the plot, and also me picking out certain quotes which I really like in there. So I'm not going to repeat all of those, but the main reason I did it was... Because I love it as it's such a homage to Citizen Kane in the fact that it jumps around a lot. <laughs> homage. Um, homage. Um, yeah, I think and it's... then when yeah. Houseman's talking to Mank early on in the movie, and it's like, this script is awful, it's just a collection of fragments that leap around in time, like Mexican jumping beans. Is the yes, quote that's that a nice I noted quote. down. Mm-hmm. 
To which Mank just goes, Welcome to my mind, old sock. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that explains a lot of Citizen Kane and also this movie itself. So by writing down all these different things, I also managed to capture the amount of times it jumps, which is interesting, and I'll explain briefly how many times it does jump, but also why you think that wouldn't work, but why it does work. That I've counted that it jumps twenty-six times in the space. Oh my. Of, in the space of two hours ten. Um now you think that's a lot because Work that out as about six minutes per scene max. You make up about 130 minutes. Five minutes. Can't you believe that's how most movies work already, though? They just have six minutes yeah. or so dedicated to a scene and then they move on to the next one, but in this it's just a more jarring move on to the next one. Yeah, maybe like normal movies, probably the scenes are even less than that, but at the same time they're flowing forward in time, whereas we're jumping around. Yes. Just a collection of stories that. Overall, compared to a normal movie that has a continuous plot, is completely different. Um, the reason why I think it works so well is because half of that time is spent present day as he's writing it on the ranch in 1940. Um, yes. So we're not cutting between 26 different stories. In a, if anything, we're cutting between maximum of 14, but at least <laughs> two or three of the 13 that aren't half of the 1940 ranch the same flashback but just shown in two so you've definitely got uh, the election eve that's two different flashbacks separated with the 1940 ranch scene we've got yes. two at the wilshire boulevard 1934 flashback um, actually one of those is 1934 and the other is the funeral in 36 um, and then you've also got the hearst castle uh, large scene towards the end um, so in reality, you've probably got, I want to say, eight, maybe nine different points in time, but split and cut 26 different times. Um, but it also works because it's so much like Citizen Kane and it is a collection of stories. And those experiences that he's had over the last 10 years that have led to him writing his greatest work. And I did personally feel that each jump was kind of to progress the writing of the story. So it like it may have been jumping around in times, but it still felt like it was progressing forwards only. Yes. And... So it would be like um Mank writing a little section about Citizen Kane, and then we'd get to see a little cutscene from his life that inspired that part of Citizen Kane. For sure. Which That's really I would argue nice means it. that um Kane himself is somewhat based on Mankiewicz's own life instead of just W.R. Hurst. But... I disagree on that because I think Hank makes Kane out to be this very arrogant when he gets to that high station position of magnate, just like Hurst. I think he took out his disrespect for Hurst in that way. Um, obviously, I do accept your point. There are, there are points of Mank in that trail in his selfishness and it does mm, yeah, yeah i'd say it comes across as um kane is just manx interpretation of hearst not hearst himself actually yeah i think that's it's informed by his views on him and his experiences yeah. spending time with him here yeah. that's nice um specific 
good moments and quotes. I really like the one when it goes to the 34 flashback at MGM, probably about half an hour in, where Mayor says to him, what does he think MGM stands for? Mank. Oh, yes. Mank and everybody thinks it's Metro Goldwyn Mayor because it is. But then Mayer says this thing in German, right? And he says it means Mayer's golden family. Do you, do you have it typed exactly, like the actual quote itself? Uh, have a look. Because I'm trying to type it and I'm like, I have no idea how to spell this. Yeah, it kind of seems like it's Polish, actually. I think that's a very nice quote. I'm also a big fan of um, when Mank is at the ranch in 1940 and the guy comes in, he's like, you're wearing a coat. And uh, the guy goes, I always wear a coat. And Mank looks outside from his bed and goes, it must be 108 degrees. <laughs> oh, yeah. The houseman just it needs just... the uh, fashion. And I also think there's that point where Rita talks to the aid cleaner um, talks about Manx's acts of goodwill for the story of him bringing a hundred people from the village um, Rita talks that Manx drinks too much and he's always drinking late at night and he's always pretty much passing out the woman pretty much shuts Rita down and he says but she says so it's clear what they think of Manx and that he is a good man which is nice and I like um, how Rita then like just accepts okay yeah maybe i shouldn't try and baby him but then goes around and still pokes fun at him anyway like while giving him his alcohol. definitely um and there's also that point where I say to him i never realized someone could care so much about a sled which is nice <laughs> yeah um the good quotes there are let's have a look the whole exchange between him and Wells towards the end when Mank realises that he does actually want credit for it and Wells shouts at him we have a contract and you my friend will lose and then he doesn't lose because he does get credited and he doesn't lose yeah um, and also one of my favourite quotes he says during that 1933 flashback of Mayor's, Mayor Mayor's birthday at Hearst Castle uh, when Mank, you know, the difference between communism and socialism, in socialism, everyone shares the wealth, in communism, everyone shares the poverty, really stood out as an amusing point for me. Um, and then that also brings us to the point you wanted to raise earlier, the quote, um, and you were going to say it during Citizen Kane about capturing a man's life. Um, in two hours, yeah. Yep, so I've got the quote here, and Mank says, you cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. I think it's a fantastic... It's a fantastic way to sum up character study movies. You can only hope to leave an impression. What you show to people watching actually affects them in some way or changes their opinion on somebody in some way, even. That's fascinating. Anything you'd like to raise? Um, going to the 1933 evening chat scene with the socialism versus communism comment, I'd mm -hmm. argue that was the best scene in the movie for me personally. I disagree, even though I think that's fantastic in the, in that he meets Marion Davies and then they have the chat outside. 
I still think the best scene is towards the end. Um, Hurst Castle, and he's drunk at dinner. And he launches into that whole speech, and uh, Hurst ends up sending him away. It's my favourite scene. Yeah, and then you get the parable of the organ grinder's monkey. Yes, and I think that's great because earlier on in the film, in 1940, Mankachi says that. Yes, I can't remember who he said it to. Was it to Rita or Houseman? He says or it was to it someone Houseman. Else entirely? I think it's Houseman. Right. And no, the reason I was, I think it's the best mo- best scene is not because it has power or anything. It just feels like, with the way everyone was just on point to continue the conversation back and forth across the room, late night chat type thing with alcohol. It straight up felt like I was just there, part of it, watching people just have a chat. It didn't feel acted at all. It just was exactly people just having a late night chat. Yeah, and their talks there. Um, yeah, that is good because obviously his wife Sarah's there with him as well. Mm, trying to keep him in check from being too uh, too controversial. And from offending people, which he does later on in my favourite scene. <laughs> yep. Have you got anything else to say about it? Um, oh, yeah, I pointed this out earlier, but for the purposes of the listeners, did you see the cameo from Bill Nye the Science Guy when you rewatched it? It did uh, not, but you pointed it out to me as yes. Upton Sinclair. Yes, Upton Sinclair giving his fanatical so speech. Botch speech. And He's, Bill Nye uh, the Science Guy. Uh, I wonder how he got the Casting for that. <laughs> no idea. Maybe he's just good at giving passionate speeches. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Lecturing the youth science. Yes. Uh, should we score it? Candidly dandy. Uh, for me, I think entertainment-wise, it's more entertaining than Citizen Kane is. Agreed. Uh, there's a lot more scenes in there that are enjoyable because can have more fun with what's being said and the interactions between the characters I don't want to say better because I don't think they are but more enjoyable to watch because of some of the dialogue um, but we give it like 8 entertainment wise and critical 8 too I really like it and I don't see why people don't like it because critics did like it when it came out me personally you mentioning there that it's got more uh entertaining scenes reminded me of um the scene of Shelley in the office being drunk and um then Mank finds him goes like okay I've tried this don't don't end it this way and so he gets given all the bullets and I'm like but Shelley's kept the gun so there must be a reason to that right and then Mank gets home to Shelley's wife and he's like but he had a full box of bullets and then you cut over and he's done it and it's like oh dramatic that was tense like there's got to be a reason and then they reveal it and you get to see mank being like oh no that that was good but yeah that's an example of why i've given it entertainment seven and a half and critical of eight it's good between the two which do you prefer definitely mank same (laughs) Probably people won't like us for saying that, but I I agree. Nah, 
more watchable. Yes. And rewatchable, actually. Yeah, because once you've got the impression of Kane himself, how many times can you like reacquire it? Yeah, and once you know Rosebud the first time, it's not as much of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, okay, so let's move on to our recommended movies that we uh, recommended to each other in the last podcast. Um, all that time ago. All that time ago. A galaxy so you... far, far away. <laughs> close, close enough away. Um, your recommendation to me was one I had already seen but hadn't seen for ages, which was the 2016 film Arrival, directed by our favourite man, arguably, Denis ah, Villeneuve. Yes. Denis, Lord Denis. Whose booked their ticket at IMAX for opening night? Me. Who's paid way too much for their ticket? Me. <laughs> it's £25. That's the most I've ever paid cinema oh ticket. That's ridiculous, I know. Good lord. That's more than it's... a Disney Plus release. actually is. That's astonishing. Okay. Anyway, uh, Arrival is 7.9 on IMDb. It won the Oscar for Best Sound Editing. And pretty much the same premise I listed off last time, I believe, where linguist Louise is hired by the military to translate an alien language. And that's about it. <laughs> that's about it. Um... I guess I'll start with saying out of all of Villeneuve's films that I've seen this for me is the hardest to get on board with um, I'm not bored watching it, I just just never really enjoy it or I don't know if you're meant to enjoy it, I just can't get with it and I don't see why so much hype about it it's probably controversial but it's the way I see it I'm pretty sure that's how I felt after watching it the first time, but then I went away and like read up on just what it explores, just in case I was missing something, and then I started just appreciating a bit more, because on the surface it's just, oh no, aliens have arrived, we need to uh, make sure they aren't a threat and be prepared for war if they are. That's the entire movie on the surface, which might seem like a novel take on the genre because Americans aren't immediately fighting them as soon as they turn up like they normally do. But in Arrival, they don't end up fighting. Whoa, a big twist. But, I mean, underneath all that, you get a thought-provoking exploration of humanity's destructive tendencies and why empathy should be more prevalent in our lives, need for better communication and less hostility in the world which I quite like there are things in there that I like I like the simplicity of it and I like the way it looks um, big things, two big positives simplicity in the way things are designed like the uh, what they call heptapods yes and how they just sort of sentient squids who squirt out ink to communicate yes, gives me Mario Kart vibes. <laughs> Mario Kart also... vibes. The squid that puts the ink over the screen. Yeah, no, it's just I would okay. not have expected that. Probably the first time it's ever been said about Arrival. Speaking of, have you heard about the new uh, Mario movie coming? Yes, I'm very excited, especially because Charlie Charlie Day is playing Luigi, which is bound part to of be that is good. exactly why I'm not excited because they've got so many big names. The budget can't have been that big. They will have put it all into the actors. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. 
Um, as in, like, the, uh, Ian calls them Abbott and Costello just because of my love for who's on first. Yes. That's a really small thing. Also, one thing I like, because I like the music, is the use of On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter at the start and at the end. Which... don't know the song personally. Used it in Shutter Island as well. Time. I'll send it to you afterwards, you'll probably recognise it. I they use it at the start will. of the film and at the end. I don't really remember the music being that Im- like impactful in Arrival, to be honest. I think it's powerful at the start with her and her child before it goes on to the language mm. stuff. Um... I just really like that tune. Um, and also, I think the use of that song is why it was disqualified from being nominated for Best Original Score at the Oscars or something. Some technicality by using that disqualified it. Yeah. Oscars always have their technicalities. They do, and there's probably no reading into them too much. Um, yeah. My main criticism for it is no matter how many times I watch it or see clips for it, it just doesn't interest me as I think it should. I appreciate it, and I do like the twist of it all. Mm. I just... I I don't know. It doesn't bore me. I just am not interested by it. Uh, I feel like I can understand that, because it does seem like it should be more thought-provoking and more impactful than it is. But at the same time, I quite like what it is for what it is. I feel like it's done enough of a good job at what it's done. And I feel like this entire last sentence has just been me saying nothing. Like it's been like, <laughs> it is what it is, you know? <laughs> but at the same time, it is what it is. <laughs> it's about translating alien languages, but a bit more underneath that. I think if I was to score it, I'd give it... I always give it like six critical, but like five entertainment, because it just doesn't interest me as much as I thought, think it should. Well, fair play. I've given it a um, seven and a half in both. Okay. Because you, you like it more than me. I feel like I would have given it seven in both, possibly a bit less in critical, had there not been that um, plot. I think I called it a plot addition last time instead of a plot twist where the flashbacks throughout the movie haven't actually been flashbacks and they've been flash forwards and just I think it's a really interesting avenue to explore where Louise will have a moral dilemma knowing the future of her child's life and how it affects her and her husband Ian and then she went through with it anyway And then because of that, Ian then finds out that she knew because she'd had the flash forwards Mm -hmm. and then broke it off with her. And I just think that's a really cool thing that should be explored fully in a movie someday. Yeah, potentially. And it does work well. I give it that. And it Mm. surprised me when I watched it the first time that it did that. The way it gets there is a bit iffy, though, where the language the heptapods have is based around time. I think that's why... Yeah, because it kind of um, somewhat changes pace halfway through the movie about stopping, was it the Chinese president? Yeah, stopping the Chinese president from attacking them. And it started to become a different movie, which sure. not entirely sold on. Okay. Um, we move on to the other recommendation, mine to you, which was Her. 
Yes. Which is a 2013 film directed by Spike Jones. The very good IMDb score of 8.0. It won the best original screenplay at the Oscars in 2014. With its premise of, in the near future, lonely card writer Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, develops a relationship with an advanced virtual assistant, Samantha, played by Scarlett Johansson, who is tailored to his wants and needs. Yes. Um, Another Amy Adams movie here, yeah? Yeah, true. Um, I somewhat liked it. It was a unique take on the sort of AI getting stronger type movie where instead of it taking over the world like an iRobot or something it just what actually happened at the end all the virtual assistants just left somewhere uh yes they essentially I'll get onto that in a minute I do have a to say about it um, okay. you see now why when we filmed the Blade Runner episode when Tom was here that we cited it so much in yes. the way that Joy is portrayed in 2049. Yes, I'd 100% give you that. Okay. And um, honestly, part of me was expecting something similar to happen where ScarJo gets a like robot body so that they can be together. And then yeah. it didn't. It like Scarlett Johansson isn't seen in the movie. She's purely a voice actress. That's true. There are very big parallels with 2049 in the use of bringing in someone to be that physical embodiment. So Isabella comes into this in her. Um, actually by Osha uh, Doubleday, who's actually in Mr. Robot and is a very important character in that. So to see her in this a couple of years before Mr. Robot was nice. Hmm. Um, same way that in 2049, um, the person comes to the, the prostitute comes to the apartment of Kay and Joy mirrors her over the top and look physically like her. Yeah, like puts a hologram over the top of her. Love that scene. Um, Um, It's a good world-building idea. 100%. My thing with her is, every time I watch it, I really like it. And then once I've watched it, I can't remember what happens in it. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at these I've seen notes it. I've written. and I've seen I it three s- times. I completely forgot about the um, little snowman alien thing from the video game. Bringing, I can't remember that. Bringing a decent chunk of comedy, in my mind no, at I least, with that. all the overt swearing-style jokes. And it, it was just a bit bizarre, but in a fun sort of way. I'm going to have to rewatch this, because I've, I've seen it three times. I only The last time I watched it was about... It was during lockdown last year. Oh. I just oh, like. barely remember anything. The one thing I do love about it, though, is Scully Hansen's performance. Um, 100%, yep. The emotion she's able to convey without actually seeing her is like, ridiculous. And I kind of wish that her performance was highlighted by people more and by award season more, because it is great. The chemistry she can build with Joaquin, who's not actually there. It's nuts. Mm. And I feel like just the tone of voice she used was perfect for a um, virtual assistant because I'd say it was almost an excited human tone of voice. 
which yeah. if you're designing a virtual assistant you'll want them to sound like Competitive friendly and robotic that not to be used to yeah so having it be almost excited was the perfect choice of tone of voice mm -hmm. i think that's comes through in 2049 as well with joy yes the sort of tone and pitch that she uses it was very humanoid yes more human than human <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah she's not a replicant oh, that's such a good um, line more human than human live by it <laughs> Um, but overall, I love her when I watch it. I just can't remember it, which is the biggest problem. Yeah. I remember some aspects of it, like having the note of the little snowman alien. I remembered some of those scenes. But I agree, it's not entirely the most memorable in what happens, okay. like, visually. It's more about just the story it tells. And we... Do you agree with that? Yeah, can we get to where we can say, like everything else we've discussed tonight, apart from Arrival, it's a character study? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is, so there's not much plot. Yeah. We just, we just spend time with Theodore. I would argue um, also we spend time with Samantha. She's still a character to be yeah, studied. Pretty much spend equal time with both. Yeah. yeah. So maybe in that way we don't remember it very much because not that much happens. Quite possibly. Point, but it is well adored by fans, rightly so. Um, I've also got a bit written written here about Scarjo's voice acting, where I've put. Now I'll admit I was quite tired while watching this one, and sometimes I zoned out a bit, but heard Theodore and Samantha talking and thought it was actually two people talking. Which is both a testament to Scarjo's voice acting, as well as a testament to how I need to fix my sleeping pattern. <laughs> That's fair. I think also, like, that happens, there's a really good scene in 2049, before we see Joy for the first time. He goes back to his apartment, they're speaking, and you don't see her for a bit, and then you do. And she is the hologram, but you think she's real before that kind of thing. Yes, where it's just like, go home to your spouse. Calling out from the kitchen, do you want your steak and chips, honey? <laughs> exactly. Type thing. <laughs> no, I do like her. Um, and if I was to score it, particularly I give it eight or nine. Entertainment wise, I give it like seven because I remember when I do watch it, it does interest me because the chemistry is clearly there. My biggest plot, plot sorry, my biggest flaw with it is I just can't remember very much of it. Mm, yeah. Well. I've given it pretty much the same scores then if you've gone 8 or 9 for Critical because I've gone um, 8 for Critical, 7 for Entertainment. <laughs> I'd say um, it, it deserves that Critical rating because throughout the movie the only thing that Theodore can really find joy in is a program designed to make him feel joy, which is yeah. kind of sad. It's the whole premise of him being really down, depressed, lonely and introverted, isn't it? Yeah. He's like portrayed as this outcast either by his choice or because <laughs> it's Joaquin Phoenix, dare I say, societies <laughs> after the Joker. And I mean, even looking at the main poster for it, the theatrical poster, if you're able to pull that up, he just looks lost. Yeah. 
looking he's, straight at the camera. Kind just of looks lost the entire movie only. until he finds solace in Samantha. And then even she leaves at the end to go off somewhere. <laughs> he finds more solace with Samantha than we find in Quantum of Solace. Yeah. <laughs> there is of no sport. solace. <laughs> Overall, very, very good. It's not very Agreed. memorable. Should we give each other our new recommendations? Yes, this week we're doing something a bit spicy, because neither of us have seen the movies we want to recommend this week. <laughs> we just both want to watch both of them. Can yeah. I actually... Can I add in a third, just to be that guy? I mean, if we're changing it all up for season two, go for it. I'll put it on the document as well. Thing is, it got re-released and we talked so Ooh. much of Malcolm McDowell. True. A clockwork, a rag, a rag, a rag <laughs> meat. Yep. It's there too you, late, you I can't it. smell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm recommending to you and myself, Donnie Darko, seeing as we're coming up towards Halloween. And I am recommending The Mauritanian. It came out not very long ago. Not that long ago, indeed. We'll both watch A Clockwork Orange. I've seen it before. You haven't seen it, am I right? You've I have not seen it, but I've, I've heard of its reputation. Sure. Um, very good, and you'll see probably why it was so controversial when it came out. Also how good it is, and... It's Malcolm McDowell at his finest, I think. Should be very good. And it's Kubrick, so... <laughs> I'll just leave that there. love a good old Kubrick movie. I still need to watch Space Odyssey. Not seen it? Not seen it, no. There's a lot oh. of movies that have just been on my list for ages because they're just classics. And I've just never watched them. There's a good cinema in London down here called the Prince Charles Cinema where I went to see Phantom Thread and they show a lot of old stuff and they regularly show 2001 and I want to see it on the big screen maybe I should just come down so we can watch it at some point yeah they show it quite regularly actually um, interesting thing with it is the first half an hour nothing is said <laughs> oh yes it's pretty one much... of those movies yeah and it pretty much builds world builds the universe from human as apes pretty much it's that, that strange mm. um, I mean it's meant to be really good so hopefully it's not strange or too strange yeah they show it really often like in the next month and a half they're showing it six times Ooh. the new unrestored version apparently it's three hours that's probably more than I've seen because I've only seen like two and a half hour cuts of it is interesting. Maybe we can arrange a time for me to come down and watch the extended edition with you. Would be class. And also maybe see The French Dispatch or Last Night in Soho. Agreed. Exactly. We missed out on being able to see that. Well, the film festival started on Monday. No, it started yesterday, sorry. Tickets sold out mm. far too quickly. It was what tickets on release at 10 a.m. We check at 11, and they were already all gone. The reason for that was BFI members had been able to book them from like the Friday before. Yeah, which is a bit annoying, but oh well. But they pay for that, right? So yeah. <laughs> so we will do those three next time. Um, next episode will be. Next episode will be a uh, Bond special. I think we mentioned that at the start, didn't we? 
Yes. Did. And we're planning to cover all five Daniel Craig films. <laughs> all five DC films. Hmm, we're covering Batman. <laughs> Better DC, not the DCEU. <laughs> no. Although, best DC movies are the Dark Knight trilogy. Villain trilogy all the way. Yeah. So I guess, thanks for listening. Hopefully we'll uh, not go on to an indefinite hiatus again and come back with season three next time. <laughs> and hope we'll try you and enjoy get the season two. So yeah, thanks for listening. Please subscribe if you can, depending on which platform you use. We distribute to a lot now. Key to anchor for doing that. Um, and yeah, tell your friends. <laughs>